0: About him, And I've kind of followed his career. We have a common thing in background. My wife is from the same area as Lee initially, and they were involved in camps. And then the year we got married, we worked all year at Lake James, and Lee was involved in that camp. But he went to California, and I kind of wondered about that. You know California. (laughs) But one thing that shows me, he's the man that he is. He came back in California and he's still preaching the same stuff. <laughs> That's the key. He's God's man. And I don't think you can say any more about any man. Amen. He's a man. Thank you, Mike. Very kind of you. Don't you appreciate Art? We work together once in a while and I, 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 I've nicknamed him the Golden Fog of the Restoration Movement. <laughs> just, just, just does such a great job. And you know yesterday I was here and I enjoyed that celebration. Now I don't really know you all but I enjoyed that celebration so much it was just so exciting. And to hear about everything over 150 years, that was neat. One of the things that really impressed me was when you said you had 12 Timothys into the the preaching ministry. That's great. That is wonderful, and several of them are here today. I've known Mel and Mike for a long, long time. Um, In fact, the first time I was introduced to them, they came to my church, my home church. And they were up on the platform and my mother said, that's Mel Harrell and Mike Steer, honey. And then she put me back in her arms. <laughs> I've got a little table out there by the door where I put a little bit of display. There's not much there but there's some freebies there. There's some pens and some things to clean your glasses, and some ladies, there's there's uh, emery boards and, and uh, just all sorts of things, heralds, restoration heralds, there's a sign-up sheet. And if you'll print your name and address, we will send you the restoration herald absolutely free for three months, and then you can decide whether you want to keep getting it or not. Ginsu knives are not included in that offer. Uh, do want you to sign up for them. Um, I want you to know about the restoration, about the Christian Restoration Association. I'm going to take one minute to tell you about them. No mission organization has done as much for you in your Christian life as has the CRA. Now, I can say that because we're over 90 years old, and we go back a long, long way. And some of the things, now you all have a camp out here that was one of the first two camps in our brotherhood. And I think we got the idea to start camps from that, and we helped start camps in 12 states, and then 14 more states, and now we've got camps everywhere we go. That's one of the things we did. We started churches. Out there at the camp, you have a dormitory called Rom, R-A-U-M, right? Do you know who he was? Rom was a preacher that was sent to Michigan by the Christian Restoration Association to start churches up here. So we had a lot to do with the start of some of those churches that are around this area. And uh, we kept the disciples of Christ from swallowing us. You are free and independent today because the CRA was there doing its job. That's history that if you don't know, you ought to know. And we also started direct support missions. Up until the time we started direct support missions, you used to send your mission money to an organization in Indianapolis, Indiana, and they would divide it up among the missionaries, but uh, we started that. So uh, please, there's some brochures out there. Get one of those, especially if you're part of the missions committee and one, or one of the elders, because we can always use more support. Thank you very much. Ginsu knives not included in that either, but uh, we do have to get that commercial in. I am very glad to be here today. This was just so exciting. You're examining your heritage as a congregation. And I think that's a good time to examine us. By the way, first of all, is 150 years, that's a long time. Is there anybody here that's got perfect attendance? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody? There, there were a couple of you I was wondering about, but no, I just wanted to check on it. But it's a good time to check our heritage as a congregation, as a people see what was our purpose in coming together as a congregation. Historically, we belong to what's known as the Restoration Movement. What is that? Very briefly, let me say it is a movement, not a church, not a denomination, but it is a movement to restore New Testament Christianity. You'll recall from history, that Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Huss, John Knox were part of what's called the Reformation Movement. And you remember that that was an attempt by those men to reform the church. The church had gone on for a thousand plus years and it had gradually made changes and the changes took them farther and farther away from New Testament Christianity it led them off and you know these changes occurred uh, until men these men all of a sudden woke up one day and they said wait a minute what I'm reading in the New Testament is not what I'm seeing out here in the church we've got to turn it around we've got to get back we've got to reform the church we have gotta go back to what it originally was and so they started movement to reform the church But the problem was that when they died, people did not realize, their followers did not realize that they were moving. And so they said, oh, whatever this man that I was following believed, that's what I'm going to believe. And they stopped the movement. The changes that occurred in Christianity were very, very gradual. Let me show you how gradual changes occur. We don't even know about it. My wife kept a scrapbook from my first ministry. When kids came along, the scrapbook ceased, but we've got a scrapbook of that first ministry. And one day she had it out and we were looking at it, and she said, I've got a question to ask you. I said, okay, what is it? She said, when did we women quit wearing hats and white gloves to church? How many of you remember doing that? Yeah. Can anybody point to the date when you stopped doing it? It was a change that occurred so gradually that you didn't even know. Now, that's not whether it's a change of good or bad. That's just a change. Changes occur all of the time, and we don't always know that they're happening until we look back and all of a sudden we say, whoa, when did that happen? How did we do that? But then in the early part of the 19th century, there were some men that were raised up by God that saw that things still weren't right as far as the Bible was concerned. Those men began another reformation movement that later called the Restoration Movement. Their idea was not to reform the church, but to restore New Testament Christianity in both faith and practice. I want to talk about that restoration movement, some of the things that helped start it. But first of all, let's read our scripture and then have prayer. Our scripture this morning is coming from 2 Timothy, the third chapter, beginning with verse 16, a very familiar passage of scripture. I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, 2 Timothy 3, beginning with verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let's bow for a word prayer, please. Heavenly Father, guide us just now in the next few moments as we look to your word. Your word's been a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path for this congregation for 150 years. And should you tarry your return, we pray that it will continue to guide the people that meet here for the rest of their lives and as long until Jesus comes. Father, guide us just now that this word will enlighten us today, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to share with you one of the principles upon which our movement grew and I really think it's maybe the most important of the principles. I want you to see what can be one of the greatest aids to unity of Christ's church. Now in this message, I am going to mention some denominational churches. I am not making fun of them in any way. I am simply being historic. So please, if you're from a denominational church, I am not making fun of you. I am just simply trying to be historic. One of the early leaders of the Restoration Movement was a man by the name of Thomas Campbell. Thomas Campbell immigrated to the United States from Ireland. He had been a preacher in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland and he was quick to join the presbytery here in the United States. He settled near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and he was given four counties that he was to preach in by the synod of that area. One Sunday, he found himself in a community and he inquired as to how long it had been since they had had communion. And he found out it had been a long time and so he decided that he would go ahead and have a communion service. Now, they had decided, the synod had decided that if you were not a part of their particular group of the Presbyterian church, then you could not have communion with their group, even though you may be a Presbyterian. Now he was a member of the old light, anti-burger, seceder, Presbyterian church. is that a name for you? And do you realize that every one of those things has to do with government over in Ireland? Has nothing to do with scripture, has nothing to do with what the Bible teaches about Christianity. Now, that sect here in the United States, here, political over there, they came with their politics over here, and they said, now, you cannot have communion if you're not part of the old-light, anti burner seceder, Presbyterian church. But Thomas Campbell found other Presbyterians in the area, and he invited them to participate in communion. He didn't care about the old light anti-burger seceder part of it. He just thought if they're Presbyterians, it was okay for them to have communion with him. So to make a long and complex story short, he was censured by his leaders, and he was kicked out as a preacher. Now he was told he could still preach, but they didn't give him any places to preach, so essentially he was kicked out. With this, he gathered some friends together and they began meeting for worship on a regular basis. And in the course of their meetings, they began to decide what they should do about the future. Campbell had seen what petty jealousy had done to Christianity. Men were divided. The scriptures were against division. And finally they decided that they would form a new religious society that would search for the unity of all Christians. And they would follow one rule, and Thomas Campbell stated it like this. Where the scriptures speak, we speak. And where the scriptures are silent, we are silent. And when Campbell made that great pronouncement, they said you could have heard a pin drop in that place. Now we're going to leave that scene for just a few moments. We'll come back to it because there's more to it than just that. Where the scriptures speak, we speak. Why is that important? That is the guiding principle upon which this movement to restore New Testament Christianity is based. That is the guiding principle uh, from 150 years ago that started this congregation. Where the scriptures speak, we will speak. Division has come from man-made creeds and ideas and books. But true Christianity can only be found in the simple New Testament scriptures. Now, why is it important to put the Bible first? First of all, the Bible is divine, other books are human. In my wedding ceremonies, I present a Bible to a young couple as they're married. And as, during the service, I say, God has not brought man into this world and left him without a way of knowing what God's will is for man. That's very true. God has left man with a revelation of his will for man and that revelation is called the Bible. This book is unique among all other books ever written. It was written by over 40 men over a period of 1400 years on three different continents in three different languages. Yet it has a central message and the central theme that runs through its pages is Jesus Christ and the salvation of men the Old Testament says someone is coming Matthew Mark Luke and John say someone is here the rest of the New Testament says someone is coming again and when you get down to it what it really is is the Old Testament says Jesus is coming Matthew Mark Luke and John say Jesus is here and then the rest of the New Testament says Jesus is coming again. You see folks it's all about Jesus. This book is different. It is inspired revelation of God and when I say inspired I do not mean in the same way that we might say Shakespeare or Milton was inspired. The Bible claims a unique inspiration. The word inspiration means God breathed. It has the idea that the Spirit of God was breathing upon man the message that God wanted communicated to man. Now those men, they used their own style. They had their own message, but for God, he was guiding them in what they wrote. I sort of think about it when I was back in school, probably about first grade. Remember when you were learning how to read? They gave you those papers that had all those lines on it. Remember those big lines? and they gave you pencils that were huge, you had to rest them on your shoulder. <laughs> and across the board, in front, was the alphabet and, and today the teacher says, we're going to write the letter B. Write the letter B. First of all, write a row of capitals and then we'll write a, uh, write uh, we'll write, re, we'll write a row of small letters, and so you'd take that and, now, when I was in school, all I wanted to do was to get it done and get onto something else. So I wasn't always careful about what I was doing, you know, but when the teacher came along, when, you know, they'd walk up and down the aisles, and they'd get to you, and they'd bend over, and you could feel their breath on the back of your neck, and smell their breath that needed a mint. Oh, I'm having horrible flashbacks. <laughs> You're trying to write, you know, you wanna be as careful as you can. That's sort of the way I think the Holy Spirit guided people. He stood and looked over their shoulder and guided them to make sure they stayed between the lines. Now this is extremely important as we're gonna see later. But right now, I want you to listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. You know, I've got all these things here. I should have it marked. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure. See now he's saying, I was there on the mountain. I saw what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw all of that, but now he says, but we have something that's more important than that, more sure than that. We have the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, But men spake from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God inspired those men and kept them in the line so that they could do what was right. Now, right away somebody comes along and says, well, what about all the errors and the discrepancies that you hear about all the time? Every few months you'll read some article and somebody's found some mistakes in the Bible. One of the most unusual things I've ever read was the testimony of a couple of scholarly gentlemen concerning what the Bible said about what they told, what people were saying were errors in the Bible. One of them came from B.H. Carroll and the other from R.A. Torrey. Dr. Carroll said that he had seen so many contradictions and errors in the Bible melt away that he had lost all confidence in their existence. As a boy, he thought he had discovered 1,000 more contradictions than as a man he now saw. Dr. Carroll avowed that there were perhaps a half a dozen difficulties in the Bible that he could not yet as satisfactorily explain to himself, but that since he had seen 994 out of 1,000 harmonize with the truth of God, he was disposed to think that if he had more understanding of the facts, he could harmonize those other six. R.A. Torrey said something very pertinent. Dr. Torrey said that he found that all of his difficulties were disappearing as he studied the Bible more intimately. At first, he avowed, they disappeared one by one, then two by two, then by scores, ever disappearing more and more. It is thus with the so-called errors and seemingly difficulties of the Bible. As we study them, they increasingly disappear. And as we draw near to God, the Bible becomes more inevitably the veritable truth of heaven. When I was in high school, I had a civics teacher my freshman year, who I thought was a communist. Later on, he quit teaching at our high school and became a professor at Indiana University, and then I knew he was a communist. (laughs) We got into an argument one day about whether the Bible was the word of God or not. I was always taught that it was the word of God and not to back down, and so I stayed and argued with him, The bell rang. It was time for lunch. He dismissed the class, but I didn't leave. I stayed and argued with him. We argued all the way down to the cafeteria, and when we got down to the cafeteria, he did what teachers will do. He made me go to the back of the line, and he crowded in front of the line. And when he did, he crowded in front of some of my friends who came to me, and they said, you know, Mr. Bates was mumbling a whole lot when he got in line. I said, what was he mumbling? He said, huh. Kid thinks the Bible's right just because it's never been proven wrong. I said, Yes, he's starting to understand. The Bible is not a technical book, it's not a book that is written in technical language of any particular science. If it would have been written that way, it would be difficult for most of us to understand, except for scientists in that field. But let me very quickly add that whenever the Bible has spoken about something in these fields, that unless it is clearly a figure of speech, it has never been proven wrong in any technical field. What's man's real problem? Man's real problem is he just can't understand the power of God. Let's use Jonah as an example. There are many who try to say that it's a myth no one could be swallowed by a whale or a great fish or sea monster as the scripture calls it. Well the Bible doesn't say whale in the Greek or Hebrew text. The text says God prepared a great sea monster or fish. A lot of people find that hard to believe but Jesus thought it was true. He said as Jonah was in the belly of the fish Three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. He staked his deity on the fact that Jonah was a real person. One time there came home from Bible school a little boy who said that he did not believe what they told him in church that day. His dad said, well, what was the story about that you studied? And he said, it was Jonah and the whale. The father said, son, I also have a problem with that story. You tell me what trouble you have with it, and I'll tell you the trouble I have with it. The little boy looked at him and he says, Well, Daddy, my difficulty is that I just do not believe such a thing ever happened. I do not believe that a man could live in the stomach of a whale for three days and come out alive. The father said, My son, my difficulty with the story is not quite what yours is. My difficulty is this I cannot understand how God could make a man, and I cannot understand how God could make a whale. If I could understand those two things, it would be very easy for me to put the two together. That's the real problem. It's limiting God. We dare not limit him. We are to believe his matchless work and to adore and praise him for all that he's done. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Not only is the word of God divine, it is also authoritative. Our text says that, says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for instruction, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The prime reason for the Bible is not for pressing flowers or holding keepsakes or keeping a family tree or decorating your coffee table. The prime reason is to bring us to God. Now let's go back to when Thomas Campbell said, where the scriptures speak, we speak, and where the scriptures are silent, we are silent. When Campbell said that, there was stunned silence in that room. The people were thinking of the implications of that, and finally the silence was broken by a man by the name of Andrew Monroe, who arose, and he said, Mr. Campbell, if we adopt that as a basis, then that will be the end of infant baptism. Campbell responded, of course. If infant baptism not be found in the scripture, we can have nothing to do with it. Now, when he said that, he thought he could still prove infant baptism in the scripture. But what he said, nevertheless, was true. Upon hearing this, a man by the name of Thomas Atchison, who was a man, they said, of warm impulse, stood, laid his hand on his heart and said, I hope that I may never see the day when my heart will renounce the blessed sayings of Jesus, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And then he burst into tears. You see, it was a searching time for them. They were going to take just the Bible At that point, a man by the name of James Foster arose and said, Mr. Atchison, I would remind you that in that portion of scripture you have just quoted, there is no reference whatsoever to infant baptism. The important thing was that here was a group of people who realized that the Bible was authoritative. And being authoritative, they were going to accept it as such, but the story goes on. For although they accepted the statement that they were going to follow the scriptures, they still had a lot of searching to do concerning what the Bible says and get over of their their preconceived notions and prejudices. It wasn't until three years later, when Thomas's son Alexander and daughter in law had their first child that they all of a sudden came to grips with this issue of infant baptism. Thomas and Alexander both went to the scriptures. They were both preachers. They both knew Greek. They went to the Greek New Testament. They both came to the same conclusion that infant baptism is not taught in the New Testament. The scripture was silent about that. But the scriptures did teach the immersion of a penitent believer in Christ. They had all been sprinkled. But now all of a sudden they realize that even though they were preachers, they needed to be immersed into Christ. The only preacher they knew in that area who immersed was a Baptist preacher by the name of Matthias Luce. They asked him to immerse them, but the Baptist only baptized those who had had some sort of strange religious experience and thought, said they were saved already and this was to get into the church. But the Campbells convinced him that the New Testament taught that baptism was to come only after faith and after repentance and upon a single confession of that faith. And so on June the 12th, 1812 in Buffalo Creek, Thomas Campbell preached a sermon, Alexander Campbell preached another sermon, and they along with five others were baptized into Christ for the remission of their sins upon making the good confession, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. The next day, 13 others were also baptized into Christ. These people were pioneers. They had to break with their tradition. Tradition taught to them by their church, by their parents, but they were willing because the Bible told them what to do and the Bible was authoritative. Finally, the Bible is also sufficient. Others are insufficient. Where does faith come from? The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That was what brought people to faith in Christ in the first century. It was God's word. What was it that brought people to faith in Christ in the second century? God's word. What was it that brought people to faith in Christ in the third century, the fourth century, fifth century? It was always the word of God. And so on until we get to the time of the Reformation when creeds developed. And all of a sudden you were only a Christian if you accepted this creed or that creed. That's why Thomas Campbell got into trouble when he served the Lord's Supper to people other than of his own sect of Presbyterians. They didn't follow everything like his group did, and so they didn't even consider those other Presbyterians as Christians. The real problem was that they were following their creeds more than they were the Bible. Some will say that creeds that men have written are just parts of the Bible, or at least from the Bible, but if it's more than the Bible, it's too much. If it's less than the Bible, it's not enough. If it's the same as the Bible, then it's not necessary. One of the early pioneer preachers was a fellow by the name of Raccoon John Smith. He told this story, he said a Christian and a Baptist were arguing about what they believed. The argument continued for some time until finally both men decided that they should pick someone impartial to decide between them. They asked this man to be the judge and the man asked them one question he said what do you believe? The Christian replied I believe that Jesus is the Christ as revealed in the scriptures. The Baptist answered I believe in the Philadelphia Confession of Faith and the articles it contains. Turning to the Christian, the man said, Sir, when you die, you will go to heaven to live with Jesus. Turning to the Baptist, he said, Sir, when you die, you will go to Philadelphia. (laughs) Friends, the creeds of men are not important. But Jesus Christ and his holy word are important. Where the Bible speaks, we speak. But there's also a second part of that sentence, and that is where the Bible is silent, we are silent. We we will cannot and will not bind anything on anybody nor preach anything that is not contained in the Holy Word. So much of the religious world is divided today, not by what God says in his word, but by what men say. Oh, the last... 30 years we've seen churches divide over musical instruments. Can you have, We when I was in California preaching, we had a, a music committee. And the woman that was the chairman of the music committee, her husband was chairman of the elders. And music was just starting to change. And all of a sudden came across my desk that we had regulations for what kind of music we could have in our church service. And I read it and it said no guitars and no drums unless they were from the Impact Brass of Ozark Bible College <laughs> or the Come Alive Singers of Cincinnati Bible Seminary. I asked her one time I said Whoa, where'd you get that? You can't have a guitar. And her answer was, it's not part of a classical orchestra. And I said, where did you get that? That the classical orchestra governs what the church does. Well, we've written it. That's what we're going to (laughs) do. That was fun. (laughs) Some churches will find that you cannot be a Christian if you ladies wear makeup. Uh, I've got a preacher friend of mine who went to speak to one group out in Iowa and he said while he was there they kept asking him if he had a picture of his wife and he said yes and they said can we see it and he said no and they said why not he said the only reason you want to see the picture of my wife is to see if she's wearing makeup or not I've always said if the barn needs paint you paint it now I may have lost part of the crowd now. <laughs> may have lost them. Some churches will say you're going to hell if you worship using musical instruments. Some people will say you have to have just the right idea on the second coming of Christ and the millennial question. Some say you can only use one cup in the communion service. Some say you can't have church buildings. I got to tell you this, and, and, and preachers, you'll love this. We were out in, we were doing a Bible conference out in Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona area. And we were there a couple days ahead of time, and I went, it was winter, you know, I'm not going to Phoenix unless it's winter back here. So I wanted to get a little sun, so I went out and sat by the swimming pool, and a man came with two small children, just the four of us there. So I have to start a conversation with him, and I said, where are you from? He said, Los Angeles area. Where are you from? Cincinnati area. Oh, okay. I said, um, uh, What are you doing here? He said, Oh, we're just taking a little few days' vacation. Then he said to me, What are you doing here? And that's what I wanted him to do. And I said, We're out here holding a Bible conference just a few blocks over here. I'd like to invite you uh, over at the Paseo Verde Christian Church. He said, Oh, I go to a church of Christ. Now, having ministered in Southern California, I said, well, you said Church of Christ. You said Southern California. Let me guess that it's an a cappella church, in other words, a church that doesn't have musical instruments. He said, yes, but we do have a kitchen. (laughs) The non-instrumental people are divided something like 33 times over incidentals and that's one of them, whether you can have a kitchen or not. He wanted me to know he was not as conservative as some of the others. People hold matters of faith, things that the Bible has nothing to say about. Friends, we're not going to do that. This church has been here for 150 years because you've taken the Bible And said where the Bible speaks, we'll speak. And where the Bible is silent, we are silent. And that's something you have to examine and re-examine every so often. And make a commitment that you're going to follow Christ and his word. We're not a part of a denomination. We're part of a movement of people who have fellowship in Jesus Christ. We're trying to restore the life and practice of the New Testament church. If the scripture says it then we will preach it and we will practice it but if the scripture is silent about something we will not make it the basis for fellowship in jesus christ we're not a perfect people before i ever came here i knew that you were good people but i also knew you weren't perfect but then you knew the same thing about me that i'm not perfect We have not arrived to this thing of fully restoring New Testament church to all it can be and should be. But we're trying. And if by chance you're here this morning, you wanna come to the platform? If you're here by chance this morning and you've never accepted Jesus as the Lord of your life, we give the same invitation today that was given in the first century that was given hundred fifty years ago here repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that's the only invitation that we can offer because that's all the Bible says we're not perfect but we do want to restore New Testament Christianity if you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ as your Lord, we're going to sing a song and we invite you to come, confessing him, turning from your sins, and being obedient in the waters of baptism. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, how thankful we are for your word that leads us and guides us. And Father, we pray that if there's one person here today who's never accepted Jesus as the Lord of his life, that this will be the time, this will be the place, this will be the occasion when they come to Jesus and follow him in the waters of baptism. Father, have your way just now as we sing, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you come as we stand and sing, please?